If I asked you the question, who is the greatest explorer of the 20th century? You might say the Apollo 11 astronauts, and I don't think you'd get too many arguments. If I asked you who the greatest explorer of the 21st century was, you might sarcastically say Captain Picard from Star Trek. Guess what? You might be close. I'm Dustin Planholt, founder and CEO of Life's Tough Media. This season of Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher is made possible through the generous support of Ripple. We hope you enjoy the series. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers Are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weese Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club, just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. I'm going to give you the setting. It is March of 1999 and balloonist Brian Jones and Bertrand Picard are on the front page of almost every newspaper in the world for their historic first nonstop balloon flight around the world. They immediately jet from Egypt to New York City and the Explorers Club annual dinner, which is the most important gathering of world-class explorers every year. Much to the delight of 1,200 guests, including Buzz Aldrin, Sylvia Earle, and Don Walsh, Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones step out onto the stage to a massive balloon drop. Bertrand, do you remember that day? How can I forget that? It was incredible. We've been 20 days alone in the capsule, and suddenly we were with 1,200 friends from the Explorers Club. That was magical. I think that might have been the first time I met you as well. And just to give our audience a little background of why I thought that you know, metaphorically stepping on the stage was so important, you come from a very uh, unique background of Explorers, I know plenty of second-generation explorers. I don't know three generations. So 
your grandfather's name was Auguste, and um, Jacques Picard was your uh, father, who Don Walsh had his historic first trip to the bottom of the ocean. So there had to be a sense of relief for you that now you were stepping onto the same uh, level as your uh, grandfather and your father. Yes, and you know, <laughs> for the anecdote, I can show you on the screen the Explorers Club card. 1963. Card from my grandfather yeah. and from my father. So I had the Explorers Club all my childhood in front of me and their medals of the Explorers Club also. And uh, I was dreaming of being an explorer, but it's, it's difficult to be an explorer when you dream about it just the month that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin put their foot on the moon, because I had the impression everything had been explored. So I started to just be open to everything that was new, everything that had not been made, and going from hang gliding to micro light to crossing the Atlantic in a balloon. Suddenly, I was in these flights to go around the world nonstop in a balloon. That was my ultimate dream. It was six years of my life to prepare it. And this success, exactly as you said, Richard, this success was for me a, a fulfillment. I, I was finally in the world of explorers where so many of them had inspired me to to embrace the unknown, to go for the doubts, to go for the question marks, marks to go for everything that hadn't been done. So your father, uh, just uh, two decades, let's see, two decades, uh, in the 1960s with Don Walsh, were the first to the um, bottom of the ocean, to the Marianas uh, Trench. So your father, I believe, was alive when you landed on that balloon flight. Yes, and do you remember Absolutely. the first uh, conversation you had with him? Yes, you, you know, my, my father was a fantastic explorer. He went to the Marina Trench. He built five submarines to explore the oceans and the lakes. But nevertheless, he was a very, very protective father. And during the flight I did around the world, he was very, very anxious. And I remember he sent me an email to, 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 to the Breitling Orbiter balloon and i read it in the capsule the day before landing and he told me of course congratulations you're going to succeed it's fantastic but don't forget to bend your knees when you touch down it's, you know it, it is so amazing because of course I, I would bend my knees of course when you land with a balloon you have to be careful and but he needed to give me this piece of advice to to, to feel better it was really touching. <laughs> you know, it's funny the conversations that you have even during historic moments. Um, I, I recently asked one of uh, Neil Armstrong's uh, sons, when you first uh, came to the quarantine area and saw your father, what's the first thing he said to you? And he said, he said to me and my brother, have you guys been mowing the lawn? <laughs> yes, because... For us in the family, exploration is normal. So we always speak of everything else, everything else. But my, my, you know, it was touching. My, my father welcomed me after the flight around the world with a Breitling hat. And in the back, it was written 1884, which was the, the, the year Breitling was founded. But it was also the year my grandfather was born. So in that sense, my father was wearing a hat where there was the birth date 
of, of my grandfather. And the three generations in this way were re, reunited. I'm always kind of curious of those moments um, because you had to know that the world was watching. And so you share something very intimate with Brian Jones, right? You, you had been together for 20 hours, uh, 20 days in a very cramped um, capsule. And so before you land, it's sort of like the calm before the land. Is it something that um, made you guys anxious? Is it one of those things like, here we go? You know, what was that conversation, you know, the hours before you were going to land? Well, the proof of the success that was the day before the landing when we crossed the finish line over Mauritania. And there we fell in the arms of each other. We hugged each other. We, we, we cheered. And then we looked at each other and said, okay, we, we succeeded, but we still have to fly this balloon. <laughs> and we still have 24 hours to go. So then it was only concentration to, to land correctly. And we could really celebrate once we've landed. You know, you mentioned, I, you, you mentioned the background of, of your father and that you grew up with exploration. So you and I are about the same age, and uh, I grew up watching the Apollo missions, right? I, I would cut out newspapers. I would watch on television. I'd use any excuse to stay from home, home from school if there was a launch that day. And you were a little different. Instead of just the newspapers— you had actually met some of the Apollo astronauts and, and were to some of the launches. Am I correct on that? I was very fortunate. I was between 10, 10 and 12 years old, living in Florida, close to Cape Canaveral. My father was a friend of Werner von Braun, and he had just built a submarine for Grumman Aerospace, who was building the lunar module. So I was invited with my father and my mother for every liftoff, Apollo 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, absolutely incredible. And the, the evening before, there was always a big cocktail where all of the previous astronauts were attending and some other heroes of exploration. And uh, in these cocktails, I met Charles Lindbergh. I met all the right stuff astronauts, you know, from, G, from Mercury, from Gemini, the early Apollo astronauts. And I was there just dreaming of exploration and dreaming of having this type of life. And these people really gave me the taste for exploration. I, I owe them so much because they were taking care of the little boy who was looking at them with big eyes and uh, asking them naive questions. And they, they were so human, you know, they were not supermen. They were normal people speaking in a normal way but completely passionate, completely dedicated to what they were doing. And this gave me a fantastic view of what exploration could be. You know, it's interesting because I have a little bit of an, an analogous situation um, with my own children, um, you, who you have met. Uh, last year, um, you and I uh, attended the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing, and we had eight Apollo astronauts including Buzz Aldrin. And so these were men that you watched as a, a 10 or 11-year-old and my boys the same age meeting them. And you mentioned the humanity of the astronauts because I noticed in the sea of uh, fans, and let's face it, when you're at the Explorers Club, that's the 
you know, the top, the pantheon, the, the, the top of the pyramid of explorers, the Apollo astronauts. Yet I noticed they um, gravitated towards the kids because I think that um, they almost felt that they had to earn their admiration or tell a funny joke or be the cool kind of uncle than everyone else who just wants to talk to them about the same subject over and over again. So it was interesting seeing these uh, astronauts talking to my children. So, um, but I, you know, I, I don't think they quite have the perspective yet of, of, you know, maybe years from now, they'll say, wow, I met the fir-, you know, the first guys who walked on the moon. So, uh, you know, I'm sure it took a little time before you realized how special those moments were. But you know, your children are very fortunate to be born in that environment because I give you another anecdote with children. I was in Portugal walking together with Neil Armstrong. We were giving a prize in a big event together. And in front of us, there was a man I did not know who was walking about 10 meters in front of us. And all the hundreds of the hundreds of children, they were cheering at him. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to take pictures of him. And I asked to the organizer, but who is that? And they said, it's Cristiano Ronaldo, <laughs> the football player. And I told to the organizer, you know what? If the children are cheering at a football player and ignoring the first man on the moon, the world is finished. <laughs> and I was completely depressed. <laughs> I, you know, I think everything is relative because, um, you know, for example, Charles Lindbergh, the first man to sow the, the Atlantic Ocean in the 1920s and 30s, was probably the most recognizable person in the world, right? Everybody knew he, who he was. Yes. Absolutely. But if you ask most kids today or even adults, young adults, who he is, I bet you, uh, you know, tw- only 20 percent of Americans know who Charles Lindbergh is. I-, I don't know that number, but I'm just saying, you know, people or celebrity tells to- tends to be very relative to the time in which you grow up. But this is why the Explorers Club is so important. You need the Explorers Club to cultivate the memory of all these fantastic pioneers, because these are the role models we should have. These people have really achieved something absolutely extraordinary. They have opened new ways to think, to do, to travel, to, to so, so important. And we need to keep these role models alive in the mind of, of the children. So this is a program the Explorers Club should do is really to to, to educate about exploration, but educate about the pioneers who made exploration so beautiful. So you could have kind of called it a day after that balloon flight and said, you know what? I have achieved a, a really important historic first and that I will forever be known as the, the first guy or first couple that went uh, nonstop, but yet you didn't. You started your next project, Solar Impulse, and that was a monumental undertaking about now using technology uh, to prove something, prove a proof of concept of something that would better the world. So how did Solar Impulse, this is the first solar-powered flight around the world, how did that start? Because a success should never be an end in itself. It's not a goal. It's only a step you walk on to have more credibility and more 
potential to do something else, to do something even better. And uh, if Breitling Orbiter balloon flight around the world was for me a personal dream, I also wanted to do something that was clearly useful for, for humankind. And I wanted to show that you can fly around the world without fuel, thanks to clean technologies and using renewable energies, and show that it's possible when everybody says it's impossible. You know, I, I was, uh, I think I was at JFK Airport in New York during one of your legs of landing. I, I remember that. And, uh, you know, you were always, you always seemed to be in good spirits, but these flights uh, have got to be uh, draining. And, and for people who don't know, your background is actually in um, psychiatry. And so how has that helped you um, in the, the dynamics of those flights, uh, moving forward ideas, uh, helping you through difficult uh, situations. I, I know you've mentioned once to me that you even do self-hypnosis to fall asleep. Yes, that's true. In the air, I was, I was using self-hypnosis to be able to sleep in short periods of 20 minutes. And sometimes I was using self-hypnosis to stay awake. Uh, so exactly the opposite. Instead of breathing out very deeply, was breathing in very deeply to accumulate energy and, and stay awake when I was tired. But it was interesting to see that the flights were always so fascinating. I enjoyed so much that it was never, never difficult to, to cope with. I, I just loved it. What was extremely difficult in this project was all the time on the ground on the ground, not in the air. Because on the ground, we had to deal with administration, bureaucracy, security measures, technology, uh, weather constraints. And, and that was terrible, you know? Probably one out of two or three flights was postponed each time. So you sit in the cockpit and, and you get out of the cockpit and you, you cannot take off. So it, it was very, very difficult. And probably what I learned a lot was resilience. It's really the word I needed to, 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 to implement in my daily life. In every crisis, in every problem, you know, you always need to, to see which is the new tool that you have to build in order to be better after than before. And in Solar Impulse, it was clearly resilience. You know, speaking of resilience, um, you and I have spoken about the pandemic several times, and uh, I think you said to me once that the goal behind any crisis is to come out of that crisis better than when you started. So what's your advice on this current pandemic? Because people are, you know, have got to be calling in question their very existence. What does this all mean? If there is any advice to give on that, what is it? You need to remember that the crisis that you accept becomes an adventure. And an adventure that you refuse will remain a crisis. This is something really important because we are not responsible of what life is bringing us, but we are responsible individually of what we're doing with it. So what are we going to learn? What are we going to understand? And sometimes what we have to learn is resilience, acceptation. We have to accept that we are part of a bigger system of the world where there are bacteria, viruses, 
problems, wars, injustice, and maybe our role is to try to make all this work better. So this is why I say that exploration today is not so much about discovering new territories anymore because we've discovered everything, including the moon. But now it's about making a better quality of life on Earth. And for this, we need to explore different ways of thinking, different ways of doing, different ways to make relations between human beings and nature or human beings, uh, uh, two human beings also between themselves. So there is so much to learn in order to make a life worth being lived on this planet. Bertrand, that sort of leads perfectly into your next sort of exploration or what you're working on now is the idea of making the world a better place. Yes, because with the Solar Impulse Foundation, now we are working on something very down-to-earth, I would say, very, very practical, which is uh, identifying in the world 1,000 technological solutions that can protect the environment, but in a financially profitable way, in order to be able to interest, get, get the interest of heads of states, governments, big corporations, big institutions, and give them the tools they need to have much more ambitious and effective uh, energy policies, environmental targets, and, and so on. Bertrand, we just have about uh, five minutes left, but I do have some questions I want to ask you because you have been in the unique position of really meeting virtually every great explorer of the 20th century, at least in the second half of the 20th century. Of those um, right stuff uh, astronauts and uh, Apollo people and people who have gone to the bottom, who, who are the explorers that have impressed you the most? The ones that you know, you thought, wow, this guy is really got everything going for him. Is there anybody in particular? Well, Charles Lindbergh impressed me very much when I met him. What in about him? What, what did you find interesting about him? His charisma. You know, he was a living legend and he was there, very tall, white hair, talking to me when I was 11 years old. And I thought, wow, this guy is just a human being. And uh, I found that with, with other big explorers, big astronauts. I, I, I like Wally Shira very much, uh, Scott Carpenter very much. You know, Scott Carpenter came for my 12th birthday in 1970 in California. And uh, years later, years later, yeah, 30 years later, uh, I gave a speech about the balloon flight around the world. And an old man came to me after my speech and said, do you remember me? I'm Scott Carpenter. And I said, yeah, I think I'll remember you. Of course I remember you. How can I forget you? Impossible. And, you know, the, these people were just so touching. And, of course, uh, Neil Armstrong. I, I was a friend of Neil Armstrong because we never spoke about the moon, you know. I, I understood that if you speak about the moon, you are like everybody else and you're going to to make him fed up. Uh, so we're speaking of everything else. You and, know, it's, uh, it's funny you mentioned sort of um, Scott Carpenter because one of the things I find um, most interesting when two explorers get together is we sort of trade stories. 
So I spent a week and a half in the Moroccan desert with Scott Carpenter. Um, we were going to this um, gathering of nomadic Arabs in the desert called Tantan. Uh, we were meeting the king of Morocco. And so he was telling the king of Morocco that um, he had landed very far off off course on his landing. You remember that? He said, but some Russian guy landed even further. And I said to him, Scott, the only difference is that guy was defecting. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so so, so we, we we laughed. You know, it's uh, you also mentioned Neil Armstrong. And again, just dropping names back and forth. Uh, I think, you know, Peter Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary's son. He said yeah. that he once went to the North Pole with his father, Ed Hillary, the first guy in Everest, and Neil Armstrong. And I said that, you know, what did they talk about? And he said, you know, his father, Ed Hillary, was so interested on so many things about the moon. But he said Neil Armstrong never once really asked him about Everest. And so I think that when I look at these two types of explorers, if you're a mountain climber, you're probably a mountain guide, which means you're sort of entertaining or getting along with people. And the astronauts were very singularly focused on their mission and not really the external. So there you have very different personalities, obviously a lot of respect for each other. And he had wonderful things to say about Neil Armstrong as well. Yes. But you know why I, I liked Scott Carpenter so much? If he landed very far, of course, of his course in the middle of the ocean instead of close to the airship carrier, it's because he enjoyed his flight. <laughs> Described it very well. He just enjoyed it. He was telling at the on the radio how beautiful he was. It was how great he was feeling up there, and he was a bit distracted, and did not land at the right place. And I think this is so great because he was not a machine. He was not a robot. It just was a big heart enjoying what he was saying from up there. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, it's interesting if you ask uh, Buzz Aldrin, you knew Neil Armstrong, I'd only met him, but when you ask those guys to um, emotionalize their landing experience, they were very much mission-focused, and I don't think they ever took the time to internalize what was going on. They would say, you know, we had a checklist. I didn't really bring emotion into it. They may have shook hands or, or done so, did something. But I think that you're right. Scott, Scott Carpenter's emotional response to his flight was a lot different than the guys on Apollo 11. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So but there I, were explorers who became good friends. It's like uh, Richard Branson, uh, Steve Fawcett. We were very friendly rivals when we were trying to fly around the world nonstop in a balloon. And we, we, kept always this friendship together. And it was sad that Steve Fossett died so, so early with this airplane accident. Yeah. He, he, was, he was very, very impressive. You know, he could do everything in every field, uh, in, the, in the mountain, underwater, in the sailboat, in the balloon, in an airplane. He was so polyvalent. And I, I really admired uh, Steve Fossett. And now there is Victor Vescovo, who is doing a bit the same, except that he has been back to the Marina Trench, which, which was great. He, he went to, to see the place my father and Don Walsh have put the Baptist Cave in 1960. But he's also a mountaineer. So Victor is also very impressive in all the different fields that he's active on. Yeah, he, he's a very impressive guy. It's interesting you, you mentioned him 
because uh, before this interview, I was just talking to some uh, friends who are not involved in science or exploration. And I said to them, who are the greatest explorers of the 20th century? And they said, um, Neil Armstrong, the Apollo 11. I don't think you get that much argument. And so I, I said, who do you think is the greatest explorer of the 21st century? And one of them jokingly said, I think it's Captain Picard from Star Trek. Now, there is something that is um, very familiar with that story to you because in, I believe it was, what, 1986, um, the creator of Star Trek chose to call him Captain Picard, but I believe they dropped one of the C's. Yes, they made the spelling a little bit different because uh, the story was inspired of a personage the, the person of Captain Picard was inspired by the twin brother of my grandfather, Jean Picard. And uh, the author of Star Trek was afraid to be sued by my family if he was spelling exactly the same. We would never have sued him. Of course not. It would have been great to have the same spelling. But nevertheless, it comes from the twin brother of my grandfather. And the, it's very funny because he's in the future. So in that sense, he's maybe my grand, 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 son. <laughs> so you have three children. I've met them. You and your wife have done an absolutely marvelous job. I, I, I have three children. I hope my children turn out as well as your children. But, is but they are wonderful. I, I like your children very much, Richard. They are so open to the world. So they, they have such a, a awareness of what is happening. It's great. Yeah, and we have our little uh, battles, right? Matt? Right now, my daughter is not enjoying a few of her classes, and so we have the typical, she's 12, about to turn into a teenager. So she's starting to have a few battles with my wife, Nikki. But is there pressure within the Picard family that you've got to be an explorer now? I mean, three generations, it feels like, is there an end of the road? Does it matter? I know you probably want what's best for your children. My father never pushed me to be an explorer. He said, do what you want, but do it well. And it's exactly what I did with my children. I have three daughters. I told them, do what you want, but do it with a pioneering spirit. Don't do exactly what other people are doing. Just look how you can think differently, how you can behave differently, what you can invent in whatever you do and in whatever you are. And um, I think it's, it worked. They are fulfilled in their life. They are very active, very open, very responsible of what they are doing, very aware about protection of the environment. So they are explorers of life, if not explorers of the moon or the underwater. You know, as, as much as I have enjoyed uh, when I first met you at that balloon drop after um, the Breitling orbiter flight, and as much as I enjoyed being a JFK when the solar impulse landed, to me, the most joyous and memorable uh, moment with you is having dinner in your kitchen in Switzerland at your home with your daughters and their, their boyfriends and, and, and your uh, wife. To me, that spoke much greater volumes about who you are as a man and what you value. So Bertrand, I, I, I thank you for being an explorer, but I also thank you more for being a human. And um, I, I, I cherish our friendship, and I think the world is a better place for having a Bertrand Picard in it. So 
thank you for being on Life's Tough But Explorers Are Tougher. <laughs> thank you, Richard. And thank you for leading the Explorers Club and perpetuating this example of the spirit of exploration. Thank you very much, Richard. All right. You're welcome. Every great expedition has to come to an end. But that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.